the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. You were sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're delighted that you tuned in today, and we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, 340-9585, that's 340-9585, or you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically that's 630-5757, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free mobile app. That's the Calvary Chapel mobile app. And the safest way to call if you're driving in your car is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to the in-studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend. Um, We did uh, Romans chapter 6. It feels good to be back teaching on a regular rotation. So uh, we had a great time. People got saved. I pray that people got saved where you were as well. Uh, The Lord keeps moving in spite of all the craziness that's going on in this world and it gets crazier by the minute. Uh, The Lord keeps moving and he is looking for people like you and me. People that he can use to win others to Christ. We want to be those people. So um, that's what's been going on. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, ladies, this is for you. It's a sweet summer devotions uh, continues. The second installment, Talia Williams will be sharing. If you uh, can think to pray for her between now and 7 o'clock, I'm sure that she would appreciate it. Uh, we have uh, child care, of course. There's a, a really great turnout for the sweet summer devotion series. It's a little bit different than our normal verse-by-verse Bible studies, but boy, has the Lord ever blessed over these last, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 years that we've been doing this. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men's Bible study at the same time. Uh, Our youth pastor, Pastor Nelly, will be teaching the high school age youth from the book of Genesis at the same time. So you can make it a family affair, bring people, uh, hear the word taught. Uh, If your children are too small, they'll be uh, in child care, uh, and, and it's a great, great time. So all of that here tonight at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, if you can't get here, ladies, the Sweet Summer Devotion portion only uh, will be uh, live streamed at calvarysa.com. I keep thinking I have something else to say, but I can't remember, so it must not have been important. Let me get to questions that have been sent in. Again, we'd love your live calls. It always makes for a better program. Here's a question from our mobile app from Rich. He says, what is the purpose of fasting? Should New Testament believers fast today? Rich, um, uh, whether we should or shouldn't, I believe with all my heart as individual, this is one of those things between you and the Lord. Uh, I think a, a fast... Uh, in our culture has sort of devolved into, I'm going to make myself hungry so God has to answer my question. And that's not the intent of fasting at all. Um, When we fast, we should fast. 
uh, because it's a spirit-led fast. We should fast for a particular purpose or reason for clarity on an issue. And again, only at the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, remember the Jews were very legalistic. When Jesus talks about fasting, um, he's talking to a, a people under the law, and fasting was always a part of the Jewish tradition. I always upset people when I say that, that fasting isn't required of the New Testament Christian, but it's simply not. We fast and we pray, but motive is everything rich. So we can fast, but there has to be the right heart behind the fast. Isaiah chapter 58 is the uh, definitive chapter on fasting and the purpose of fasting. It's not the denial of the flesh uh, from food or from sex or, uh, or any of the other type of fasts that are mentioned in the Bible. It's, it's recognizing that you're dead and you're going to live for Christ and you're identifying in that fast by denying your flesh with what Jesus told us to do to be his disciple we must pick up our crosses, Luke adds daily, and here's the part, and deny ourselves. And so this is the process, Rich. A fast represents a heart that is intent on saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to deny myself. Now, let me make that really clear what I mean by that. To deny yourself every day is nothing more than saying no to you, to your flesh, to your desires, so that you can say yes to Jesus. So when we fast... In order to get God to give us something our flesh desires, you can see, I hope we're defeating the purpose altogether. So fasting should not be legislated or, or made uh, a, a legalistic exercise. Fasting should come from the heart. Uh, I have experienced a few times of fasting in my life, and honestly, not very many. Um, those times when I really felt I needed to hear something from the Lord, uh, and uh, on those occasions, I did. But it wasn't something that I wanted, necessarily. It wasn't something that I needed God to do for me. It was just my saying, Jesus, in this small way, I'm walking with you, denying my flesh so that I can hunger more for the things of God. And Rich, the truth is, whether we fast from food or other things, uh, we can make that same commitment as New Testament Christians with the Holy Spirit living in us. We can make that that uh, um, um, connection with the Lord every day and eat what we want to eat. So it's, it's I think, an important thing, denying the flesh saying yes to Jesus. All we have to do is get up in the morning. I mentioned this in our church services yesterday. If you get up in the morning, especially in those days where it's not going so well, you're, you know, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, if you just walk over to the mirror in the bathroom, get real close and say, no! Well, basically, that's what fasting represents. So remember, fasting had a purpose. But the purpose was the denial of self. We can do that of our own free will every day. Because unlike those to whom Jesus was speaking, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, overcome sin and temptation. We can overcome our flesh. We can be those men and women who say, Jesus, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. We can do that every day. And we can do that without going hungry. You know, final thought on this, Rich, is this. We live in a culture, uh, and it's been this way for a very long time. I'm, I'm sure that it's been this way uh, from the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. But specifically for us, we live in a culture where we think that if we do certain stuff, God has to respond to that stuff. If I give to God, he has to give to me. And we pick some verse out of context to justify it. What we need to understand is that a real fast recognizes that God has already done everything for us and more. And we're going to say yes to him and no to us every day of our lives, whether he ever does another thing or answers another prayer. That's what fasting is. Isaiah 58, that's the place to go for the explanation. Rich, thank you. I appreciate it very, very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Julie. Um, she says, thank you, Pastor Ron, for another good and practical teaching from Romans yesterday. Well, thank you, Julie, for being so nice. Uh, toward the end, you referred to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. 
And then in parentheses, she says, I so, and so is capitalized, I so want to be done with sin. God bless you for that, Julie. And then she continues, I know you're not a fan of study Bibles, but my 1985 NIV study Bible has a note on this verse that says, some see a parallel between this passage in Romans 6, 1 through 14, but Peter is not referring to being dead to sin in Paul's sense. Please elaborate and refresh my memory on this part of your teaching. Julie, there's two reasons, as you know, I'm not a fan of uh, of study Bibles. Uh, one is because we spend more time reading the comments than we do uh, the inspired Word of God, and, and I think it limits our ability to to listen to and respond to what the Holy Spirit is leading. The other reason is because study Bibles, especially the NIV, and I have uh, probably, Julia, that very same study Bible, it's a Bible I took to Bible college with me, uh, and and the comments, the explanations are very conservative. Um, They throw out all kinds of different possibilities, uh, which in my estimation causes more confusion than does answering the question. So, uh, again, I'm just not a fan of study Bibles. If you have to have one, uh, I can recommend a Thompson Chain reference, uh, or I can recommend a Schofield study Bible, but only because they have very few comments, and they're directing you over and over back to Scripture. Um, Now, in Peter's case, we need to remember this is really important. Um, uh, Peter's talking about sufferings. And he says, since Christ suffered in his body, what Peter's saying for us is very simple. Um, We need to have that attitude regarding suffering. And the only way we can do that is to die to sin, to die to temptation. And the only way we can accomplish that is because, as Paul said in the study yesterday in Romans chapter 6, that sin is dead the moment we become born again Christians. So, um, Peter is talking about suffering, to be sure, but he's trying to prepare us, and he says the only way you could do that is to arm ourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, that's a reference to Jesus, suffering in his body, and he finished the sin would be a, a better translation. And it sets sort of a tone, a foundation for this entire chapter. How did Jesus do it? He decided to. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7, Julie said, and this is prophetic of Jesus. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint? That's the decision I'm talking about. And I know that I will not be put to shame. So what we want to do if we're going to arm ourselves with that same attitude is to say, Lord, whatever happens, I'm yours. And we have to make that decision a once and for all decisions. It's to have the same mind or mindset that Jesus had. And this Greek word actually means to equip yourself with weapons for the job. The way we do that is to recognize by faith that we're dead to sin. So the connection, it's not Peter and Paul comparing notes, but the connection is especially relevant when we talk about Romans chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul says, uh, you know, sin is dead. And the, the reality is that we can look around at our own lives and the lives of others and see that sin seems at times to be very much alive. But that's what we have to do. We have to decide every day, like Jesus decide, decided, we have to decide to be free from the sins that cause us the really big problems in life. In life, It means we can choose to, to sin or we can choose to say no. We can choose to get angry. We can choose to hold grudges. Or because sin is dead and that's where sin lives in those decisions we make, we can simply say no by crucifying the flesh. Very, very important passage. But there is a connection in almost every scholar that comments on either verse in a commentary on either Romans 6 or 1 Peter 4 makes that connection. And so I'm simply not at all uh, in agreement that, um, that that they don't belong. So the NIV Study Bible, uh, same passage of Scripture. It's not a bad Bible. Just don't spend much time reading those. So, Julie, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. Uh, here is a question from... 
This one's from our email inbox, and it is from Drew. Uh, he says, I was reading First John 5 recently. After hearing another question on the radio program about, about sin and to death, Drew, Drew lives out of state, so uh, he must have been listening last week because we had a bunch of questions about First uh, John chapter 2, uh, or First John chapter 5, rather. Uh, he says, for some reason, I picked up the New King James translation. In reading the entire chapter, I noticed in verse 7 something that I'd previously not read. Therefore, I got my NIV, and sure enough, it was not included. The verse was, for the there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And then it, it says in the, the New King James, there are footnotes which explain that, uh, or in the NIV, which explain that this was taken from later Greek manuscripts. Now, here's the question. I've heard people say that the Bible cannot be trusted because of the multitude of English transactions. The adding of a sentence in one of the leading translations may give credence to people who claim the Bible can't be trusted. Do you have any idea why the translators did this, knowing their version may contradict other versions? I wonder if other religions and their Bibles have multiple translations that include variations. I'd like to claim to everyone that the Christian Bible is authentic, whether the like is the King James or the NIV or any other translation. It would be nice to tell non and new believers that the Word of God, as declared in John 1.1, really is the Word. Thoughts, please. Drew, uh, this is a question on on translating uh, manuscripts. Now, here's the reason. Now, let me let me say this because I have another question that I probably won't get to today. Uh, but people are always saying that uh, well, the NIV takes words out, and so the King James is the only one that you can trust. And none of that is true, as you indicated in your question, Drew. Uh, in the uh, New King James or in the NIV, it says this word doesn't appear in some later better manuscripts. Um, it, it's not a difference. They're both being faithful to translating um, with integrity the manuscripts they're translating. The King James and the New King James, um, their translations come from what is most often called the majority texts. Uh, it's actually Texas Receptus is the title. Uh, and those are the, the manuscripts that the King James and the New King James faithfully translates. Now, in the King James Version, of the Bible and the New King James Version as well, you'll see some words are in italics. What that means is they were not in the original manuscripts and the translator simply placed them there to make it more readable into English. Uh, those italic words don't do any damage to the text. They don't do any damage to the veracity of the text. It's just trying to translate something that's awkward, whether it's Hebrew or or Greek, into an English that makes more sense and becomes more readable, thus more understandable. So they're faithfully translating the majority text. Now, when you get to the newer translations, like the NIV or the NASB uh, or, or any of the others, uh, those translations are translating an entirely different set of manuscripts. They're in, translating the Alexandrian manuscripts, and the Alexandrian manuscripts are thought to be older than the majority texts. And the general feeling, now I've said many times on this program, I, I don't necessarily agree with this reasoning, but generally speaking, scholars believe that the older something is, the more authentic it is, and that's why uh, the newer translations are using those. Now, if they wanted to leave something out, they certainly wouldn't put it in a footnote at the end of the page. So they're not trying to hide anything, nor are they trying to conceal anything. Now, here's the way we can approach believers uh, who are a little cynical or cults. The Mormons are the ones who say, oh, yeah, we believe in the Bible insofar as it's been correctly translated, uh, or, or, or even non-believers. We can simply say there is a multitude of English translations for one reason, because the language keeps changing. We don't speak in these and thous anymore. We have words that have different meanings. In the King James day, the word conversation meant behavior. Today, conversation just means talking to one another. And so it's translated differently. And when you compare the manuscripts, and the manuscript evidence that we have of the New Testament is overwhelming in terms of, of, of demanding and understanding that it's given with, with integrity. What we need to know is that by comparing the translations, we can come up 
with an accurate representation of the original autographs which no longer exist unless God has hidden them somewhere. But the Bible that we have is dependable. Suggestion for you, the, the new evidence that demands a verdict by um, Josh McDowell, uh, very scholarly, uh, but, but uh, has more information on this kind of thing, Drew, than you can imagine. Another really good one, uh, in fact, I like this one even more, is um, the book by F.F. F. Bruce. It's not a big book. Uh, it's called the New Testament documents. Are they reliable? F F like Frank Frank Bruce. Thank you, Drew. I appreciate the question. Let's go to the phone. We got a couple people waiting. Ola calling from San Antonio on line one. Ola, thanks for calling. It's good to hear from you. Hello, Pastor Good afternoon. How are you? I have a question. I'm very well, thank you. I have a question. And um, it's about Moses and his wife. I was reading yesterday because um, there was a post on Twitter about um, the 50 years anniversary of allowing people to marry uh, for interracial marriages. And so um, I was reading up on Moses and the Cushite woman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it the correct way. And also, so I, I, I read up on it, and I thought that uh, Miriam, his sister, was um, punished, so to speak, for speaking against the marriage, or was she punished for another reason? Um, I, I just wanted to um, call to, to tell people that, you know, we're all from the same blood. The, the Bible says that God is one, and so we're all family. And I'm just happy that, you know, people can now marry according to the Lord, you know. As long as, you know, you know you're marrying somebody who's not taking you into idol worshiping and things like that, or away from the blessings of God, I think that we're, we're all one and the same. So that's what I just keep calling about. You just cry right. me about the Kushite woman. Yeah, I, I can do that. I'll do that. Thank you, Thank Ola. And I still pray for you every day. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Um, Thank you, know, you God bless you. Uh, the Kushite woman, uh, that's modern-day Ethiopia, and clearly she is what we would look at and call a black person. Now, here's what God meant when he said you cannot intermarry. He wasn't talking about race at all. He was talking about faith. And even today, while we're, 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 we're free to marry uh, outside of our race, uh, Christians, and in, in, in Moses' case, Jews, uh, were never free to marry outside of their faith. To be unequally yoked is a sin. To, 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 to have a relationship for, for us, Ola, for somebody who doesn't love our Jesus, what an impossible situation. And every pastor will tell you, and everyone who's been involved in an unequally yoked relationship will tell you how painful it is. So that's the prohibition. But apart from that, there's no distinction. God sees people in two groups, saved and unsaved. The ones who are saved, he loves. The ones who are unsaved, he loves and wants them to get saved. So what he tells us is don't marry an unbeliever. But obviously, uh, there's no difference between the races of other people. And um, uh, God was pretty harsh with Miriam uh, when she was speaking against her. Uh, but, you know, we all have prejudices. We all have our shortcomings. And that was the case there. Uh, obviously, Ola, I think you know, and, and most of the listeners know, I'm a very white man married to a beautiful black woman and God continues to pour out his spirit of love and of grace on us and then through us to others so uh, Ola thank you very much again I'm praying for you continually God bless you let's go to Live Oak now and talk with Tish Tish thanks for holding you're on the air hi Pastor Ron um, hi, I have Tish. a question hi um, about yesterday's study Romans 6 and then um kind of comparing and contrasting that with what Revelation 3 says about the lukewarm. Um, it just seems, you know, when I look at Revelation 3 objectively, there's not a whole lot of grace, and there seems to be a whole lot of grace in Romans 6. I'm just wondering if you could clarify that for me. 
sure I can. And teach. there's a lot of grace, uh, even in, in Revelation chapter 3, because what Paul is t- telling the Laodiceans, uh, or what Jesus, rather, is telling the Laodiceans, is that, is, is that they need to get right with him. That's grace, the grace that saves, the grace that lives. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's grace available. What we do is we distort grace. It is not being ungracious to tell somebody they need to repent of sin. And that's what Jesus was telling the Laodiceans. He was saying, look, here's my problem with you. You're not hot or cold. Uh, You're just lukewarm, and that makes me sick. He's saying, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. What he's asking for them to do is to make a choice. Be for me, be with me, or don't, but don't try to walk this middle ground. And he describes them as being poor, pitiful, wretched, naked, and blind. It is the most loving, gracious thing he can do to tell them because he corrects them. And then at the end of the letter, he gives them a formula for returning. And that's what grace is really all about. So, um, Tisha, I'll talk just a little bit more about this on the other side of the break. Hey, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. With 30 minutes left in the Monday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the last 30 minutes of the Monday edition of the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Before we go on to a new question, uh, let me address Tish's question or uh, her comment a little bit uh, more. You know, when, whenever we're, we're talking in, in Romans 6, and when I taught this yesterday, I, I introduced it by saying this is the freedom chapter. And we have to decide if we're really free. Anyone who has, has been crucified with Christ is dead to sin. Sin is no longer alive in us. Now, we're flesh, and our flesh flares up. Sometimes we fall into temptation. But he's addressing the Christian who says, well, where sin abounds, grace all the abounds more, so I might as well keep sinning so grace can abound more. And it's impossible for a Christian, it is impossible for a real born-again believer to continue in sin and really be saved. That doesn't mean I'm not going to sin today, I'm not going to sin tomorrow, but, but if I haven't changed, if I'm living the same life today that I was as a believer that I did before I got saved, well, where's the change? And I told the church here yesterday that if you've met my Jesus, you, you've changed. Some change radically, some change quickly. Others change less radically and less quickly, unfortunately. But we all change because that's what happens when the change agent, the person of the Holy Spirit, storms our heart. And so there's all kinds of grace. Yes, we sin, but grace abounds over and over and over. Well, sometimes that grace takes a form that we don't expect. I read yesterday in our study, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, for the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's Jesus. But then it says, that's the grace that saves. Then it says this, it, the grace, also teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, godly lives in this present age. So grace takes all kinds of forms. There's a saving grace, there's a daily grace for living, but there's also that grace that corrects. And that's what Romans 6 is really all about. And when we get to Romans 7, Paul is going to detail his own personal struggles with his flesh. And then he's going to come to the end of his rope and he's going to say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he's going to say, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And the next chapter is going to open. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yes, there's grace for sinners. Yes, there's daily grace. Yes, there's grace to live. As well as grace to save. But when he corrects us, 
That's the most valuable grace for living of all. And in Revelation chapter 3, in the letter to the Laodiceans, she's asking them to repent. You know, he could judge them, they deserve it, but that's not his heart. He wants them to come to him, he wants them to return to that place where perhaps they first loved him so deeply. And he wants them to know that they're too carried away with themselves. That's grace. It's corrective grace. It's sometimes disciplinary grace. But it's grace nonetheless. Tish, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much for your call. Here is a question from Anonymous. Oh, good timing. Anonymous says, I need to return to the relationship I had with Jesus years ago. I've lost it and don't know how to find it. Can you help? Anonymous, this is what I was just talking with Tish about. Here's the grace. Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Ephesus. A thriving church, a prosperous church materially. If they were in 2017 San Antonio, we'd say, boy, that's the happening church. They had all kinds of committees, and they had all kinds of things going on, and they were doing all kinds of good deeds, working themselves to the bone. But Jesus said, look, I have this one thing against you. You've left. You've forsaken your first love. In other words, all these things you used to do, you used to do because you loved me, but now you're just doing them. What once was a labor of love is now just labor. And then he tells them what I'm going to tell you. He tells them to remember their first love. So Anonymous, you're doing that, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I need to return to the relationship. Think about those times. What did you do? You got up in the morning, couldn't wait to hear from God. You got up in the morning and you'd open your Bible expecting that God himself was going to speak to you. You prayed, and I don't mean that awkward, agonizing prayer. I'm just talking, you talked with God all the time. You asked him simple questions. You asked him hard questions. But you just wanted to be around him. You had a feeling, and, and, and faith is not based on emotion. But it's wonderful when emotions accompany our faith. And there were those days when you wanted to shout out to Jesus, God, to God be the glory. Other days, when things were going hard, he would meet you in those places, and you knew you were in the presence of the Lord. Jesus' counsel to Ephesus' mind to you is this. Remember those times. Remember them often. The second piece of counsel is to repent. And that just takes the form of saying, Jesus, this is all my fault. You didn't move. I did. You're still chasing me, and I'm running away from you. I don't pray anymore. I don't open my Bible anymore. I've made my life so busy that I hardly have time for you. I go to church sometimes, but I used to love being there. And so you have to be honest and say, I need to repent. That's sin. You died for me, and I've run away from you. I'm sorry, Lord. And then the simple part, the third, is return. He says to them, go back and do the works you did at first. So go back with the right heart, doing the things that you did when things were better. You know, Anonymous, one of the things that always happens as a pastor, you get a lot of counseling and people in here, and their lives are filled with pain. And you ask them honestly, okay, tell me when the best time in your life was. And they'll flash back to a time when they were walking with Jesus and everything was sweet. And I'll say, what happened to that? Well, you know, I just got busy. I didn't have time or started worrying about this or worrying about that. Go back to that time. You get involved in sin. You don't want to stop sinning. You can't go back to that time. So that's why the repentance is necessary. But cleanse your heart. He loves you. He wants you back in that intimacy you once had. And his arms are wide open, Anonymous. All you have to do is turn to him and say, Lord, take me home. I don't mean to heaven. I mean to you. I want to be with you. And when you start spending time with Jesus, everything will change. The more time you spend with you, the more time even now, and this is a danger thing you've got to be careful of, the more time you spend even now, Anonymous, sort of moping about what used to be, the more lost you're going to be. 
So here's how you find it. Let me make a suggestion to you. In this case, I always refer these chapters. Go to 2 Kings chapter 6. Read the first six verses. And I mean, it won't take long at all. Read it 20 times today, tomorrow. 20 times. And read it prayerfully. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak your heart. It's the miracle of the floating axe head. And I promise you that the Lord will begin to speak to your heart. This is Him drawing you anonymous to come to Him. This isn't something you wanted to do. This is Jesus drawing you to Himself. And the way you're going to capitalize on that is by coming home. First, I'm sorry, Second Kings chapter 6, the first six verses. I mean, if you don't mind, either call or send me an email and tell me what the Lord is doing in your heart. I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Nick. Pastor Ron, are sin and suffering connected and is suffering always because of our sin? Yes and no, Nick. And I'll expand on that, but yes, all suffering is connected to sin by virtue of the fall of mankind. A suffering world isn't the kind of world that God created. He created a pristine, perfect world. Sin into the world, and we began to die. Suffering, evil, rebellion, all of that entered, and that really is the cause of all suffering. There would be no suffering if it wasn't from sin. Now, that's on a general human level. But it is not true that when you see somebody who is suffering, that they must have done something wrong. Now, I know there are horrible false teachers that teach that kind of nonsense, but that's not the case. Remember the, the man who was born blind and, and the disciples said, tell me, teacher, who, who, who sinned, this man or his mother, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response was, neither did he sin nor did his parents sin. Well, then what happened? Well, you watch the glory of God that results from this. Now, God didn't cause him to be blind, and people misread that context. That's why it's very important to, to study and rightly divide those verses. It doesn't mean that God said, well, I decided I'm going to pick him to be born blind so I could be glorified. That's not at all what the text says. What it says is that the result will be God will be glorified. And, of course, that was what happened in his healing. Now, he was suffering. He had uh, uh, a congenital disease. But it wasn't because of anything he did. And when he could see, it wasn't because of anything he could did, anything he did. He could see because of what Jesus did for him. And that's a great, great lesson for all of us. Be careful of coming to the conclusion that when somebody's suffering, well, they must have deserved it. That's what's been going on from the beginning of the world. And Nick, that is a decidedly unchristian heart. Now, you didn't imply that in your question, so I'm not saying that's what you've done. But what I want you to understand is that when you see somebody suffering, our response is to have compassion on them. We really need to have compassion on them. Hope that helps you, Nick. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Ted. He says, Pastor on the Bible says no one can see God and live, but Moses talked with God face to face. Well, Ted, you, both of those things are true, but what we do is we misunderstand how Moses talked with God. Clearly, and, and when Moses said, show me your glory, uh, even to Moses, God said, uh, no one can see my glory and live. So he tucked him in a rock, you remember the story, and he passed by and left the backside of the afterglow of his glory. And that was overwhelming to Moses. Imagine what the glory of God would be like. That's what Paul saw, not Jesus' face, not the fullness of his glory. But he saw that Jesus wielding the sword of judgment, but a Jesus who was calling him to himself. So it's true, no one can see God and live. If we were to see the glory of God, we would all be undone, to be sure, in an instant. By the way, and Ted, you didn't ask about this, but the same thing would be true if we heard God's voice audibly. You know, there are people who say, well, I heard God's voice audibly. You know, there are all times, or there are times that all of us at one time or another have heard the voice of God as though it were audible. 
But if we heard God's voice audibly, we'd be toast. We couldn't make it. Now, how do we resolve the problem with Moses and God talking face to face? That's not what it says. He said, Moses is the one I've chosen. I talk only to Moses as a man talks to a friend face to face. In other words, Moses and God talked as though they were face to face, but he didn't see his face. He was describing the conversation rather than the encounter. So, Ted, I hope that makes sense to you. Moses had such an intimate relationship with God, and by the way, that's exactly the way we can talk to God every day, because he lives in us. That's how we, we enjoy what was rare and only Moses enjoyed. We can enjoy it every minute of every day. Moses' relationship was so intimate that he spoke to God as a friend. You know, there's that worship song we sing, I have a friend in God. Um, um, Moses had a friend in God. I hope that answers your question, Ted. Thank you very much. Let's go to D calling on line one. D, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Um, I have a question um, about Bible study. I love that you teach straight from the Bible. I don't go to your church, but I grew up in a Baptist church where every Sunday morning, our Sunday school, that's how I learned to read my Bible. And uh, what I'm finding is that I was talking to my daughter today, and that's lacking in uh, her upbringing. Uh, no fault of ours, but it's just the churches that we go to. They get so big that Bible Sunday schools are pretty much um, almost non-existent. But my question is she was talking about me doing a Bible study, how I grew up. Now, we grew up where we uh, were had Sunday school books, and we had a Sunday school teacher, and she went over lessons with us, and it was the same with my parents. So that's how both my parents, who came to church later on after I did, um, learned uh the stories of the Bible, but also how to break down and to understand. Do you think it is wise for me? I'm not a Bible scholar. I, I'm versed in the Bible, but I'm not a Bible scholar, and I'm definitely not a pastor. For me to take on teaching her and my family from just a Bible study at home, because I don't want myself to say something that is an error. Mm-hmm. And lead them astray. So, um, you know, I think you know, I think in the uh, Bible somewhere it says there's people who should be teachers and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I'm, that is definitely not my ministry. So I just wonder what uh, will you think about that, and I will take your answer on the phone on the uh, radio. Uh, thank, thank you, you Dee. I appreciate it very much. What a thoughtful um, question. Uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, nobody should teach unless they have the gift of teaching. It's that simple. The gift of teaching uh, is a, a wonderful, glorious gift given by God, and and teachers study, they prepare, they rightly divide, and they share after study, after prayer. Uh, what does God want to say? Now, in a family situation, um, Dee, there's nothing at all wrong with you sitting down and showing your daughter how you were taught to, to learn the Bible. Nothing at all wrong with that. Um, the, 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 it's, it's a wonderful thing, in fact. Um, but here's the caveat. Sit down with your daughter and say, look, I'm not a Bible teacher. So let's sit down together, and I'll show you how I learned, but let's talk about these things together. Let's talk about them and just sort of explore. And the things that we don't know, we'll dig in and we'll try to find answers for. Bible studies, great. There's never a wrong time to have family devotions or family Bible studies. The only thing that, if you're going to take this endeavor, pick a book like Ephesians. It's a perfect book to begin with. Take a book like Ephesians because the design of the book, I call it the, the, the divine design of the book, it's perfect. Three chapters. This is what God has done for us. Three chapters. Here's how we respond to what God has done for us. And sort of dig it out. And, and you and your daughter can sort of uh, make a project of it and really dig in. I promise you, Dee, that God will bless it. I promise you God will bless it. Um, but at the same time, while that's a wonderful thing, it's not enough. Now I'm going to go off to you and I'm going to remove you from the conversation because I don't want this to be personal. But for the life of me, I do not understand why people go to churches that don't teach the Bible systematically. 
I mean, I don't understand it. To go to a place where topical messages are taught. I understand huge churches. I understand it's easy to have a 20-minute sermonette. I understand all of those things. But our job as pastors and teachers is to equip the body for the works of ministry. You can't do that with these cute messages. And nowadays, and I understand it's different. Remember, I wasn't raised in the church. I've been saved 26 years. Never went to church before I met Jesus. So the whole point here is this. You need to be fed. And it's the church's responsibility to do it. If you're not being fed, then you needn't go to that church. I understand we have connections. We have relationships. We have all those things. But relationships aren't the reason we go to church. We go to be equipped if you're not being equipped then your time is being wasted. Sunday schools now, sadly, tragically, D, are, and I'm putting you back in this now, but tragically, uh, are in the curriculum. I'm still amazed, even with Calvary Chapels. I, I, I'll go to the people say, well, Pastor Ron, what curriculum are you using for your children's ministry? I said, what do you mean, what curriculum? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the rest of the New Testament gospel, we teach the Bible. And our kids know it. They learn it. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to walk with Jesus when they get old. But if they don't, they'll know it's their fault. They'll know what the consequences of their choice is. So Sunday school's not cutting it. Our kids are being convinced that God isn't real, that evolution is real. They go to university and they think we lied to them all this time. And it's because they're not grounded. We teach from kindergarten up verse by verse through the Bible nothing else it's all we do it's all we've ever done now we make it age appropriate and because of the short attention span of kindergartners we, we've, we've got some colorings and we've got some crafts and stuff in there as well but they're taking a portion of scripture and they're teaching it to those kids and that's where the foundation comes from. So you and your daughter read together, D. Do it systematically. Start at the beginning of a book and read to the end. And, and don't bite off so much that you get discouraged. Um, just start talking. Read it in context. But for everybody out there, if you're not getting fed at the church you're in, if your kids, now this is a terrifying thing to me. I'm a parent, my kids are grown, but I've got grandkids, and in our church I've got a whole bunch of kids that call me Pop and, and, and Paula's Mama Paula, and, and I love these kids like they're my own flesh and blood. I have grandkids in this church that I love like they're my own grandkids by birth. And it would terrify me if my child could come to me and say, I don't know how to study. I don't know what it means. Nobody's teaching me. Church would be so much easier. And here's my suggestion to everybody who's listening, and nobody cares about my opinion. But church would be so much easier to schedule. Church would be so much more effective if they just trashed the Sunday schools for adults and turn their worship services into verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible. I know that flies in the face of tradition around here. But let me tell you something, D, and to everybody else listening. When you start to see people grow and fall in love with Jesus, tradition can fly right out the window. So I hope that is clear. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Three four zero. Oh, I guess we're inside three minutes. Boy, I talk a lot. Three. Four, we only have three minutes. Let me take another question. Uh, here's a question from Richard. Uh, do you think most people don't believe because they can't, or because they won't? Um, Richard, it's because they won't. Everybody can believe. God has given a measure of faith to everybody, so this isn't something that's difficult to understand. The gospel is not a, a doctoral thesis. Uh, everybody can understand. The reason they won't understand, Richard, is very, very simple. They don't want to stop sinning. It's that simple. They don't want to give their life to somebody else. They don't want anybody to be in authority. They want to be their own little G-God. I'm in control of my own destiny. That's the mantra, especially of those of us who are men. 
And the reason you don't believe is because you don't want to stop sinning. And when you come to Jesus, he tells you you got to walk in holiness. you got to stop sinning and follow him. And then it's simply a matter of refusal. That's all. It's just refusal. When people say things to me, and this happens all the time, well, you know, I just don't know how you can be so sure of something that you can't see. I mean, I've been taught that we came from lower life forms. I've been taught that the earth came from a big bang. The Bible says that's not true. I just don't know how you can believe in the face of the scientific evidence. I always ask them, well, tell me what's going on in your life. What are you doing that you know is wrong that you don't want to stop doing? And I always get that look on the face. Very few people actually tell me what it is, but I always get that look on the face that says, how do you know? And when you're sharing with people like this, by the way, the Lord will give you words of knowledge. That's what the Holy Spirit does because he wants that person to come to faith. And I always tell them, look, you can believe if you want to. But you have to stop sinning. And then open your heart. Want to try? Most of the time. Almost always, in fact, they say, no, I'm not ready yet. I tell them, when you're ready, you know where I'll be. I don't push them. I don't press them. I don't try to, to, to pound something in them, come up with a more persuasive argument. I just let them know that Jesus is always hovering around, and so will I be. Hey, that program went fast today. Thank you very much for your phone calls and your questions. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, sweet summer devotions here tonight at 7 o'clock. Talia Williams, pray for it. We're praying for you, Talia. God bless you. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and find somebody and tell them about Jesus. See you tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.